Jeremiah's uh, message up to chapter 30 of his book has been one of unrelieved doom and darkness. Right away in chapter 1, Jeremiah paints the picture that Israel is in the position of someone who is sitting under a cauldron of boiling hot water which is beginning to tip. And it, uh, imminently that pot is going to tip far enough so that this boiling water begins to pour out on the people. His message has been just one chapter after another, this message of gloom and darkness and judgment. But beginning in chapter 30, there breaks into this message of darkness a ray of hope. And from chapters 30 through 33, Jeremiah sings for the people a song of hope. David discussed with you the first part of that song of hope last week, and I want to continue this morning in chapter 32. If anybody qualifies in the scripture as a man of faith, Jeremiah certainly was the guy. Uh, at this point in the narrative in chapter 32, Jeremiah had been laboring faithfully for 40 years now, proclaiming to the people the word of God, proclaiming his truth to a people that really cared very little about it and responded either with difference, indifference or outright hostility to the words that Jeremiah proclaimed. And I think we see in chapter 32 several characteristics of Jeremiah's faith that I want to draw our attention to because I think we can profit from his example in our own lives today. Jeremiah gives us the historical background of this particular incident in the first five verses of chapter 32. <clears throat> this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to hand the city over to the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. <clears throat> Jeremiah tells us that this took place in the 10th year of Zedekiah, or the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne in Babylon in 605 B.C. when he defeated the Egyptians. And so this would be the year 587 B.C. Those of you that know your Bible chronology know that Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 and just uh, less than a year later. And the writer tells us that at this very time that this prophecy was uttered, <clears throat> the armies of Babylon were uh, besieging the city of Jerusalem, that the armies of Babylon surrounded the city and they had begun to build siege ramps which would ena enable them to scale the walls of the city. So the army of Babylon was gathering like floodwaters behind a weak dam about at any point to burst through the floodgates into the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah at this time was under house arrest in the courtyard of the palace of the king. Uh, he'd had, uh, as I mentioned, an uh, unrelieved message of uh, pessimism to give, and so the king was tired of the way in which 
Jeremiah was demoralizing his people. The king would go out in the morning to give his army a pep talk and say, okay, hang tough, guys. We're going to lick these Babylonians. And Jeremiah would come along and say, hey, you're wasting your time. They're going to wipe you guys out. And uh, so the king, tired of this demoralizing influence that Jeremiah was having on his troops, put him in chains and uh, kept him in the courtyard of his own palace so he could literally keep an eye on this uh, troublemaker. So it was in the circumstance of almost uh, unrelieved gloom that this message of hope comes. And we see the first part of it in verses 6 through 8. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew then that this was the word of the Lord. Now, the law had provided in uh, Leviticus 25 that if any uh, member of the nation became impoverished, had to declare bankruptcy that his land was to be purchased by a member of his own family so that the land which was their inheritance from God could stay in that particular family. Now, Hanamel was Jeremiah's cousin. They both came from the town of Anathoth, hometown for both of them. I think whoever named that city had a uh, lisp. Every time I read it and say Anathoth, I think that. But they were both from the same town and... This Hanamel, evidently, due to the pressure of the current economic conditions, uh, had gone uh, belly up, had gone bankrupt. And uh, so the Lord said to Jeremiah, Hanamel, your cousin, is going to come to you and ask you to buy his land to keep it in the family. And when he does, I want you to do it. I want you to buy that land. Now, the first thing I want you to observe about Jeremiah in this little paragraph is the way in which he tests the word of the Lord before he acts on it. Uh, The first characteristic of Jeremiah's faith that we see in this chapter is that faith is cautious. It tests the word of the Lord before it acts on it. Notice in verse 6, Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me. Then in verse 8, Just as the Lord had said, Hanamel showed up, And then he knew at the end of verse 8 that this was the word of the Lord. Jeremiah knew from what Moses had said back in Deuteronomy 18 that the test of a word from God, the test that authenticates it as a word from God, is that it comes true. If there's someone who prophesies in the name of the Lord and what he says comes true, you'll know that that man spoke a word from God. If a man claims to be a prophet from God and says something which does not come true, then you know that that man is not a prophet. You can safely ignore anything he says in the future. Well, Jeremiah applied the same test to this word that he received from the Lord. He received a word from the Lord that Hanamel is going to come and offer to sell you his land. Well, when Hanamel showed up and offered to sell Jeremiah his land, that's when Jeremiah knew that that word indeed was a word from the Lord. So he proceeded cautiously. I think it's a helpful lesson for many believers today. I know instances of where many Christians have uh, 
are convinced that they have uh, received a message from the Lord uh, through some sort of strong intuition or deep-seated feeling that this is what God wants them to do, and they've rushed out to act on that impulse and gotten themselves in a great deal of trouble because they eventually discover that that was not the voice of the Lord at all. Uh, there are many Christians who have a very naive sort of implicit faith in their teachers, and they will do almost anything that their teachers tell them to do with their time and property and treasure because they have not stopped, first of all, to test the word of that teacher against the scriptures. <clears throat> I know of one instance of a, a girl who was convinced through some uh, means that she had received the revelation from the Lord that she was going to marry this particular man. She didn't know him particularly well, nor was she in love with him, but she was convinced that God had spoken to her and revealed to her that this was the man in her future. And then when this man uh, fell in love with and married someone else, she was very disturbed and very perplexed. Well, she was confused because she had not first stopped to test that word to see if it was from the Lord. A couple of years ago, a family in our fellowship got a uh, frantic call from a friend of theirs whose son had had a uh, revelation from the Lord that Jesus was going to return in 39 days. And this created an immediate sense of panic and frantic uh, bustling about. And this family was concerned, is this a word from the Lord or, or is it not? And we went to the passage in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses says uh, the test of a prophet is that what he says comes true. So we realized that all we could do is wait 39 days and find out. And sure enough, 39 days came and went and the Lord did not return. And immediately we could disqualify this young man as a prophet. And we realized at that point that we never needed to listen to anything from him again. <clears throat> <laughs> because he had biblically disqualified himself from the office of prophet. So that's the first mark of Jeremiah's faith, is that it was cautious. It tested the word of the Lord to authenticate it, to confirm it before acting on it. But then in verses 9 to 14, we see that when faith determines that God has spoken, it acts, and often audaciously and courageously. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. <clears throat> in their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. <clears throat> Hanamel managed to come through the siege lines, evidently, and approach Jeremiah right there in the courtyard in the presence of the guards and people who had gathered there for safety and refuge and offered uh, to sell his land to Jeremiah. Jeremiah measured out 17 shekels worth of silver. A shekel was a weight of silver, about four-fifths of an ounce. So 17 shekels would be about seven ounces worth of silver. 
in today's dollars, about uh, 70 bucks. So Jeremiah probably got a real good bargain on this piece of land. Uh, property values had probably depreciated greatly since the Babylonians had uh, sealed off the city. And so Jeremiah was able to buy it for a fairly small price. But he had this purchase of land duly authorized and witnessed and followed all the normal business transactions of the day for the sale of a piece of property. There was both a sealed copy of the transaction as well as an unsealed copy. They would be identical in form, but the sealed copy would be folded several times, tied off, and then sealed with Jeremiah's own seal. Then the open copy would be attached to this sealed copy, and it could be consulted at will. And then if there was any disagreement or any accusation that this open copy had been tampered with, then the sealed copy could be opened and uh, consulted. So Jeremiah followed all the normal business procedures of his day to transact this sale. And then he instructed Baruch, who was his secretary and companion, to store this deed in a clay jar to protect it from dampness and decay. Very effective means of protecting documents, by the way. As you're aware, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered about 35, 40 years ago, they were discovered in clay jars, very similar to this one. And some of these documents were 2,100 years old and were still in, in mint condition. So it's a very effective means of preserving documents, just like putting in a safe deposit box. So that's what Jeremiah did. Now, this is a very bold step of faith that Jeremiah is taking. And the reason that's true is that this was a terrible time to be investing in real estate. And Jeremiah knew that. See, he knew that the Babylonians were about to crash into the city and that when they did, property values would go right through the basement. That that piece of property would be absolutely worthless in a matter of months. And Jeremiah would be out a good piece of pocket change and have nothing to show for it but a worthless piece of property. But Jeremiah was willing to take this step of faith, courageous, bold, and in the eyes of many people, utterly foolish, for the reason that we find in verse 15. <clears throat> for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Jeremiah knew that the Lord had spoken to him and said that that deed is someday going to be needed. I know it doesn't look like it right now, but someday in the future of this nation, that deed is going to be needed because land transactions like this will take place again. Remember uh, an older friend of mine who was a World War II veteran tells a story about a time he was on a troop ship going from San Francisco to Hawaii in the company of a convoy because of the threat of Japanese submarines. And sure enough, about three-quarters of the way across, the general alarm sounded indicating a submarine attack. All of the sailors were herded down into the hold of this uh, troop transport. About a thousand troops huddled down in the hold of the ship and there was just deathly quiet as they heard the depth charges being dropped and exploding and the concussion would rattle the hull. And it was a quite frightening time and uh, you could hear a pin drop in the hold of this ship until at one point right in the middle of this ordeal uh, somebody piped up and said, would anybody like to buy a good watch? <laughs> Well, Jeremiah, buying a piece of property at this time was just about like buying, taking up that guy's offer to buy a watch when the future seemed to be so uncertain from every observable point of view. 
What we see here, the second quality about faith is not only is it cautious, but when it is determined that God has spoken, it is audacious and bold. It's willing to take risks to act in ways which in the eyes of the world are quite foolish. I uh, think of Dan and Monica Brown, uh, who gave up a very prosperous and bright future with IBM in order to get further training and are now planning to spend the rest of their lives uh, sharing the gospel in the Muslim world and right now living in a city which is dirty and filthy and noisy. And in the eyes of many of their friends and family members, they've acted very foolishly to give up a, a bright uh, future and a prosperous career for uh, a lifestyle like that. And yet Dan and Monica are acting on the same basis that Jeremiah was, uh, seeing the unseen realities and truths and promises of God. They're willing to step out and act in a way which is audacious and bold and in the eyes of the world quite foolish. Talk to a woman this last week who has uh, been involved in a very difficult marital situation and she has determined that God's will for her is to stay with her husband and to make that marriage work. And her friends are telling her that she's crazy to do this. I'd say, if I were in your circumstances, I'd never in a million years do what you're doing. But based on the unseen realities of God and his presence and his truth, convinced that God has spoken to her, she's willing to act in a way which to the world seems to be foolish because they do not take into consideration the same truths and facts and unseen realities that we do. And this concept of stepping out in faith when we have discerned the mind of God has very practical implications for our own spiritual lives. Many times we're in a situation where we feel uh, like being impatient and uh, angry and harsh and unkind. And yet we know clearly from what the scripture teaches us that God's will for us is to act with patience, tolerance, kindness to return a good word for an evil word, but we don't feel at all like it. Well, we will find if we take the audacious step of faith of stepping out and beginning to act as we ought, trusting that God will support us and strengthen us when we step out into the abyss, then we will find that he's true to his word. And when we take that step of faith, acting in a way that we don't feel like or don't want to, we will find that God will at that point supply all of the resources we need to carry out that act of kindness or patience. You see this illustrated repeatedly in the Bible. Noah's a good example of this. A man who began to build this ark in his driveway when there had never in the history of the world been any rain and he was miles from the nearest body of water. You imagine his neighbors must have thought he was crazy. He had to drive around this ark on the way to work in the morning and it just cluttered up the neighborhood. But Noah was acting on the basis of truth that the rest of the world did not see. And so he was willing to act in a way that appeared foolish to them, but was actually very rational and based on facts that God had communicated to him. I think, too, of the Israelites when they crossed the Jordan River. <clears throat> when they got to the Jordan River, they got there at flood stage, the worst possible time to take two and a half million people across a river. And yet the Lord had promised them that they would walk through on dry land. But the interesting thing in that account, if you read it carefully, you see that the waters remained at flood stage until the first priest actually stepped into the river, took that step of faith and plunged into the icy waters of the river. Then instantly the rivers parted and they were able to walk through on dry land. And that's what God waits for us to do <clears throat> in a circumstance where we're pressured, is to take that first step of faith, 
to begin to act as if we were patient and tolerant and kind. And then we will find that when we take that bold step of faith, that he kicks in the resources and the strength to enable us to carry it out. So we see that Jeremiah's faith was not only cautious, but it was also audacious and bold. Now in verses 16 to 25, we see a third characteristic of Jeremiah's faith, and that is that it was often accompanied by doubts. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, this is after now he had acted so boldly and fearlessly in public, I prayed to the Lord. And I want you to notice the tone of perplexity in this prayer, particularly as we get toward the end of the prayer in verses 24 and 25. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show your love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children after them. O great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. You perform miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster upon them. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city? Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Now you can detect the confusion and the doubt in Jeremiah's voice here. He reminds himself in his prayer that God is sovereign. He says, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is out of your power. But he says, Lord, I'm also aware that you are not only creator and sovereign, but you are a judge. And that this invasion of the Babylonians is really your idea. And I thought, Lord, that your plan for this people was judgment. That you give people what they deserve... In fact, I see that the Babylonians are all around the city and that the hammer is about to fall. And so, Lord, I'm confused. I thought your plan for this people was to judge them. And I see that your judgment is just about to take place. And yet here at the same time, you've told me to go out and buy a field as if this nation was going to be around for a thousand years. He says, Lord, I'm confused. I don't understand. Now, I think what Jeremiah is reflecting here is the same kind of doubt that I often feel. And my doubts about... God are rarely general, but they're almost always specific. In other words, just like Jeremiah, I do not doubt that God has the capacity to do anything that he wants. And I've seen, as Jeremiah did, the way he has delivered the Israelites, the way he has delivered the church in the early days, the way he has delivered Christians for hundreds of years who've called upon his name. I've even seen the way he's delivered me out of jams in the past. But my doubts always have to do with my present particular circumstance. And my prayer often is, Lord, I know you can get me out of this jam, but I have my doubts that you will. (laughs) And that's what 
That's what Jeremiah is saying. Lord, I know that you can make it possible for land to be bought and sold here again, but when I look around, I see a whole lot of Babylonians and not a lot of real estate agents. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So he says, I don't doubt that you can. I just simply doubt that you will. I think we can identify with that this morning, and I think it's comforting to realize that this was... Uh, that Jeremiah felt this, that it's not uncommon for great men of faith to feel these sort of specific doubts, the same ones that often trouble us. Now, Jeremiah does a very helpful thing here. Is he, he takes his doubt to the Lord. Now, we often take these doubts that we have to other people, and that's what uh, complaining spirit and self-pity is really all about. We simply are taking our doubts about God's specific goodness and taking those to other people instead of to the Lord. <clears throat> but Jeremiah quite honestly express these doubts and confusions to the Lord. And the Lord tells him over in chapter 33, verse 3, if you just flip over there for a second, <clears throat> what the Lord said to Jeremiah there, when Jeremiah was still perplexed by this same circumstance, he said, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. If you will bring your doubts to me, Jeremiah, I will in response to that teach you great and unsearchable things. And the word unsearchable here is a word which means literally inaccessible. And it was a word that was used to describe the fortified towns of Canaan that were so built up and protected that the enemy could not penetrate. And what God says to Jeremiah, if you bring your doubts to me in those circumstances, I will reveal to you things that are beyond the ability of human reason and thought to discover I will teach you things that can only be learned if I reveal them to man. And that's what God goes on to do in verses 26 to 44. In answering Jeremiah's prayer, he teaches him three great principles by which he operates in dealing with his people to shore up Jeremiah's doubt. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind, is anything too hard for me? And the answer to that obviously is no, <coughs> that there is nothing that is too difficult for me. There's nothing that is beyond my power to do. There's nothing that is out of my control. Now, you notice he says he is the God of all mankind. I think one of the problems we have as believers is we're convinced that God is the God of Christians and that he can sometimes with a great deal of difficulty work his will in their lives. But then when we're confronted with a problem that's created by a non-Christian, we think, holy smokes, we're out of luck. But what God says to Jeremiah is that I am the God, not just of believers, but I'm the God of all mankind. And I am able to accomplish my will and carry out my purposes among all mankind, not just believers. So the first thing he says to Jeremiah then, the first great truth about the way he deals with us as his people is that he is sovereign in human affairs. He is the God of all mankind. There is nothing that is too difficult for him to do. He is the one who is in control of human events. And that's why he says in verse 28, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to hand this city over to the Babylonians. You know, who is really in control here? I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was and that this victory was a result of his great power and his might. But God pulls back this, the curtain and says to Jeremiah, the real explanation for what is taking place here is that I am handing the city over to the Babylonians. I am in control here. So that nothing that happens to my people happens by chance. 
even the terrible things that come into life and the tragedies and the disappointments are all things which ultimately come from God's hand. That he is sovereign in human affairs. Things are not careening out of control. So even the very heartbreaking things that happen to us are under God's control and happen only because he chooses to cause them or to allow them to take place in our life. He's still got his hand on the rudder. And then he goes on in verses 28 to 35 to reveal a second great principle by which he operates, and that is that he judges the sin of his people. I won't take time to uh, read this. You can do so at your leisure. But what God points out to Jeremiah is that the people have been guilty of idolatry. They worshipped Baal, a Canaanite god, and they worshipped Molech, an Ammonite god. The worship of Molech was particularly uh, heinous and detestable because Moloch as a god was represented by an iron smelting furnace, essentially. And what the people would do to worship Molech is they would build a red-hot fire in this god and heat the fire until he glowed red-hot and they would take their infant children and pitch them in to worship Molech. And God says, I simply will not allow my people to get away with that kind of behavior, that I judge my people for their sin. And he points out that everyone in the nation was guilty of this, from the kings through the priests and the prophets right down to the man in the street. They had all uh, turned their backs on God, despite his repeated efforts to reclaim them and to instruct them. Now, some Christians believe that when you have become a Christian, that you are safe from the judging hand of God, that God judges non-Christians, but he no longer judges believers. But that's clearly not true. In fact, Peter himself says the same thing in 1 Peter. He says it is time, in 1 Peter 4, for judgment to begin with the household of God. That is, when God begins his work of judging people, he doesn't start with the non-Christian world. He starts with believers. He starts with us. And he'll shake us and rattle us and kick the slats out from under us in order to purge out of our lives the sin and the self-dependence and the pride and the arrogance that uh, reside like weeds in the human heart. And it's necessary for his overall purpose in life. I have uh, had the unpleasant task uh, in the last several years, uh, each spring, of preparing our garden. Uh, that's all that I will agree to do in the garden. Once I've prepped the soil, that's it. I'm out of there. Debbie has to plant it and till it and harvest it. I refuse to have anything to do with it. But she has conned me into preparing the soil. Now, I usually put this task off as long as possible, and by the time I get around to actually prepping the soil, there are a lot of weeds, a lot of really ugly groves in that plot of ground that have to be uprooted if that garden is going to be luxuriant and productive. simply has to be done. Now, that's what God does with us as people. Uh, Jeremiah's task, you remember, clear back in chapter 1, was to uproot and to tear down. But that was part of God's task with his people is to root up these weeds that had taken root in life and to tear down the false security and false dependence and false uh, values uh, in order to, to purge these people and make them pure and holy. And God will do the same thing to us. The way the writer of Hebrews puts it is that God removes the things that can be shaken in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. 
God wants us to build a life that is grounded and solid and firm. And so in order to do that, he'll shake us till everything that can be shaken, everything that we truly cannot depend on and is no basis of security and hope for the future, he'll just shake us loose from that because he is determined and committed to make us holy people. Now he goes on in verses 36 to 44 to explain the third great principle by which he operates, and that is that his ultimate plan for his people is always prosperity and security, that that's his ultimate goal in life. He says, You are saying about the city Jeremiah, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath, I will bring them to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says, as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without men or animals, for it has been handed over to the Babylonians." Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. What he reveals to Jeremiah is that he must judge his people for their sin in order to purify them and to shake what can be shaken. But he only does that in order to bless them abundantly and to make them prosperous and content and secure. So he says to Jeremiah, I must judge them now, but my ultimate plan after they've been taken into captivity and purified, my ultimate plan is to bring them back to the land and bless them abundantly. My ultimate purpose in life is to create joy and happiness and contentment and to create people who are well-adjusted and whole and able to cope with life. And that's his ultimate purpose for us. And he judges us and shakes us and uh, allows tragedy and heartache to come into life only to purify and to purge out of us the false dependencies and the false security and the pride that keeps us from truly serving him and becoming the people that he wants us to be. But his ultimate goal in life is to bless us abundantly came across this quote from C.S. Lewis that I want to close with this morning. I think it captures what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah. Lewis says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. What C.S. Lewis reflects here is what God uh, told Jeremiah, that he only uproots in order to plant and only tears down in order to build. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this example from Jeremiah's life of faith. We see his caution and yet his audacity, his courage, as well as the doubts that he honestly expresses to you. We thank you for what you taught him in response, that you truly are sovereign in our lives, that you are committed to purifying and purging us, and you will judge us if need be to do that. But that your ultimate plan for us is prosperity and contentment. You want to make us into dazzling, radiant creatures. We ask, Lord, for you to do your great work in our lives this week. Uh, Give us the sort of faith that trusts you on a day-to-day basis and counts upon you for everything that we need to live lives as as righteous people. We pray that you'll strengthen us to love the people in our homes, to love the people that we work with, to love our neighbors, and to be an example to the watching world of what your resource and grace can do in life. Thank you for your provision, your presence with us this week. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen.